Welcome to the CAAB podcast. Today, we're going to be talking with Jeremy Moody, Secretary and Advisor to the CAAB about dispute resolution. Three years ago, the Agriculture Act gave the CAAB statutory recognition as a professional authority to appoint arbitrators to manage disputes between tenants and landlords. Since then, the Council and Executive have established the CAAB Facilitating Dispute Resolution Service and published a range of professional support papers to help in this area. Now, the Association has produced a new and comprehensive publication which pulls together many of those threads to help people avoid disputes with good negotiation and to manage any unavoidable disputes effectively. So Jeremy, can you set the scene for us to start with, please? Yes, people in business, people with tenancies, people with other contracts and arrangements are all quite capable of having differences of opinion. They can disagree, quite often they can disagree reasonably, and very often then they need to have an answer to that. That can very often be achieved by negotiation, but at some point, they may need to turn to somebody else to provide them with an answer. The key point, though, is that they need an answer. And it's to focus on the purpose of that, of achieving answers for people with differences or disputes, is very much the task that we see that we have in hand. There are processes for doing it, but the processes are the servant of the objective here, which is to deliver answers in an effective, efficient, timely, cost-effective way for parties who've got lives and businesses to get on with, who need those answers to be able to move on, to take the next decisions, to choose whether or not to spend money, and all the other actions that they might take. So the aim here is to provide a user-friendly, effective service to deliver answers for people so that they can move on. So how do you see that the publication will help with that? Well, we felt it useful to produce a publication as a guide to using the service so that people can understand the framework that they're in, the encouragement in this to negotiation, but actually to turn to advice during the negotiation so that they have a realistic view of the the circumstances and context that they're in. And then when it becomes necessary, because they can't agree or because timetables are so ticking that they need the option, uh, how they then have a set of dispute resolution process in hand. So, for example, under agricultural tenancy law, the point at which you turn to the appointment, asking for the appointment of an arbitrator, or if you choose to adopt mediation or you wish to appoint an expert to deal with a matter, how you do that, the things you should bear in mind, any timetable issues, as I've said, other issues like conflicts of interest and costs, so that you can use the service effectively, again, as part of achieving practical answers to real issues. So is this just about landlord and tenant disputes? No. This is offered as a service across the entire rural economy. Uh, The CAV president has statutory authority under the Agriculture Act, as it's amended tenancy legislation for England and Wales, to do this for both old and new agricultural tenancies. But the service itself is available for parties who wish to use it in all parts of the United Kingdom, in all sectors of the rural economy, so it could be disputes over development contracts and options, it could be about conservation covenants, it could be about environmental agreements, it could be a partnership dispute, it could be something under a sales contract, it could be a supply contract, it could be any of those areas where people are looking for disputes to be solved by people with knowledge and experience of the rural world that is the context for their own dispute. 
So what emerging areas do you see which might cause challenges in the years ahead? I think the big two that we would see are firstly that as the agricultural transition in each part of the UK unfolds, and obviously it's moving fastest in England, but it'll be moving soon in Wales, and we're expecting legislation in Scotland, and Northern Ireland has already begun its phasing away from basic payment. So we see that driving processes of business change, structural change, and those inevitably are going to throw up issues for negotiation, for discussion, for people changing, and on occasion there will be disputes in that, uh, whether it's about rents, whether it's about other arrangements, uh, whether it's about contract farming agreements, but you can see that that process of change may drive some new element of dispute and the service is there to deal with that. The other new and emerging area is, of course, around where we might be with environmental agreements. So agreements for biodiversity net gain, possibly agreements around nutrient issues, agreements, various areas that we are exploring even what's actually at stake. All those agreements will need disputes clauses, and we're happy to be there and serve them. But of course, all the old reasons for people to have disputes will remain. There will be tenancies, there will be partnerships, and I can remember a solicitor who, in his round of retirement speeches, observed that 40 years earlier, when he joined his firm, partnership disputes were the biggest source of professional activity, and as he left the firm 40 years later, partnership disputes were still the biggest source of professional activity. So this doesn't remove any of the older issues, but it brings new ones. Another area that is prospectively interesting, there are other areas now coming forward for dispute resolution under other legislation. The first of these concerns the Electronic Communications Code. And this is where the new Product Security and Telecommunication Infrastructure Act will be requiring operators to offer these forms of dispute resolution procedure to site providers as an alternative to going to tribunal. And we are strongly supportive of that, and we're very happy to provide, again, an appointing service for that as a way of trying to bring easier and more practical answers to what has been a very contested sector. The other area is a bill that has now gone through Parliament and requires the Secretary of State for Energy to look at electricity cables and there to provide for, again, other forms of dispute resolution like arbitration and expert determination or mediation to settle questions of compensation for major power cables. And again, that is an alternative to the very expensive process and quite challenging process for many people of going to the upper tribunal. And again, we are very happy to encourage that trend. We see this as good. We see, again, this part of getting people access to fair and timely and cost-effective consideration of their problems to give them answers. So a whole number of areas in which this could develop, old and new. There have been a few words coming up there. We've got negotiation, mediation, arbitration. Could you maybe just explain a little bit about how they differ and how much this is about negotiation and how much it's about the arbitration side? Yes, these are, if you like, the steps to dispute resolution are going along that path. And the one that people do every day, everything from discussion through to anything more formal is negotiation. These are two people with an issue between them. They're trying to find a way forward. 
around something that's difficult or dealing with something directly that's difficult. And they talk about it and they look at this and they say, well, what is what is an answer for me? What is an answer for you? Do I know what you want? Do I know what I want? What matters to me? What matters to you? How can we find our way through? A lot of these don't have to be zero-sum games whereby you lose for me to win. There can be things in it for both people, and that can help people find their way forward. So negotiation is a theme to run right through this. Even if you go through to arbitration and beyond, even into the courts, you can still be negotiating to arrive at the answer that suits you rather than what somebody else might decide. So never lose sight of negotiation in all of this. People can dig themselves into fixed positions. They may not understand everything that's important in the case. They may be over-obsessed by one part of a case or not understand another part of a case. And in negotiating, it can sometimes be helpful to turn to somebody else, and this could be one party, or it could be both parties together, saying, we've got an issue between us, we recognise we disagree. What does somebody else think? Just give us a view. It's not binding, it doesn't decide the issue, but it might let daylight in on something that's become rather fraught. And that's called early neutral evaluation. So two people can go and put a particular issue or the whole issue to somebody and say, well, just, just look at this, give us your view. And that may, as I said, cast daylight on it. It may help them understand their own issues better. It may help them actually settle. It may certainly enable them to understand their argument. But there may come a point, perhaps because time runs out, as with some tenancy disputes or, or other things, or where people just recognise they can't agree. That's the point where they can turn to ask a third party to help them decide the dispute. There are then two ways that they could go. The first is to ask somebody to help them with their negotiation, and that's mediation. And that's where somebody comes who may or may not know too much about the issue, but has got the skills to help people work their way through the issues, it helps them in an intense way accelerate their negotiation and see if they can arrive at an answer. It doesn't guarantee an answer, but it can resolve complex issues, perhaps where not all the issues are, are monetary or hard and fast, but where people can find a way through to get to an agreement. The other route says, can a third party tell us what the answer is? And the two forms of that are expert determination on a subject where an expert can decide for the two parties what the answer is. And they will want to put their points to the expert, but the expert, knowledgeable in the field, will have been asked to do this to bring his skills to bear and simply tell them what the answer is in a final and binding way. The one that gets talked about most is arbitration. And it has a very long history in agricultural disputes. Uh, it's been in tenancy law for well over a century and in practice long beyond that. And this is where the arbitrator, as a third party, gives the parties a final and binding answer, but it's based on evidence and arguments that have been tested with the parties. So each party has their pennyworth, can comment on the other party's pennyworth, can put and answer questions, the arbitrator can put things to the parties and must act on the basis of tested evidence and argument and then give the answer. And those are broadly the routes that are available short of the courts for people in the world that we deal in. When it comes to disputes, money is quite often involved. So awarding costs and damages, can you explore that, how that works a bit? 
Yes. I mean, this is mostly a question for arbitration. Uh, clearly, if people want a well-put case or an enably dealt with negotiation, they will be incurring their own costs. Normally, for mediation, they'll be carrying their own costs, so they will judge what is a sensible cost for what they want to achieve at that point. When it comes to arbitration, there is a power there for the arbitrator to award costs of one party against the other where there is a clear answer. And that is something that causes people some concern. And so it's useful and important to talk about this because arbitration costs need not be quite the subject of trouble that they are for many people can feel they are. The first point is you want to have your case best put because you want to win the argument. You want to arrive at an answer that's the one that suits you. So thinking about the efficient way of doing that is quite important anyway, if the outcome matters enough to you. So incurring unnecessary costs or irrelevant costs or expense is firstly, arguably a waste of money for you. But secondly, the arbitrator might choose however much you win to leave you with those costs. They didn't help the case. Staying with negotiation as you run towards arbitration, one of the powerful tools a party can use is a Calder Bank offer. And this comes out of court practices. It was originally Calder Bank and Calder Bank was a divorce case, but it builds on the old notion of paying into court. And effectively, you make a private offer so expressed so that it's without prejudice save as to costs that it's not part of the dispute that's there for the arbitrator. But you're making an offer to the other side at which you're willing to settle if they accept it. If they turn it down and then get an answer that's worse for them, the arbitrator will look at this and say, well, you've wasted everybody's effort and time. You could have had a better answer. Therefore, the costs after that offer aren't at issue. They're not a risk. The arbitrator has his own powers. The arbitrator, firstly, can look at the dispute as he begins to understand it at the beginning and say, well, frankly, this is a small dispute, or these are really the issues. I am only going to consider awarding costs up to a certain amount of money or certain particular costs. And if he says that early on, that then is a very powerful incentive for people looking at the costs they're incurring. And it's an assurance to both parties as to what might happen at the end, whatever the answer is. And of course, as I've already said, the arbitrator has the power to disallow costs where he considers they've been unnecessary, irrelevant or burdensome. And so there are quite a lot of tools there which if used, if the parties know about them and use them, which if the arbitrator um, picks up and applies, can regulate this issue of costs that does cause people concern but I hope I've shown that there are answers that are there to be used. So how would you advise parties who are facing difficulties to proceed? Is this a cheaper option than going directly down the legal route, for example? For most matters, yes. I mean, again, you have to look at each of the routes you could use as to whether it's appropriate or not. But for many of the disputes that we are talking about here, valuation disputes, issues of personal importance between parties those sorts of complex issues, the courts are not actually a terribly good forum for this. But if you have an issue where ultimately it turns on what does the law mean, then the courts are there for that. One of the problems with the courts is, of course, that the entire system is jammed. It's overloaded. 
it's, it becomes expensive in that way. The additional legal support that's needed brings cost, and you may be years before you get an answer. And that is a real problem when you're dealing with disputes that are measured out in fractions of people's lives. The faster they can get an answer, the more that they can get on with their life and their business. If disputes take years, that eats into people's active business lives, generational succession and the rest of this. And I think that matters as well. So the costs then in a dispute are, unlike the courts, you pay for the person dissolving the dispute, the mediator, the expert, the arbitrator. So that's true. But that is normally less than the cost that a party may incur in seeing a proper representation of their case. And they may want an expert to give opinions. They may want somebody to argue their corner. Again, this doesn't have to be lawyers. In all of this, these are more informal structures uh, to arrive at practical answers. But I think between cost and time for most disputes that we're looking at, this is a these other routes, alternative dispute resolution, are much more attractive and user-friendly for the parties. And what is more, the courts over the last couple of decades have been very strongly wanting parties to use these other routes to ease the burdens on the courts themselves. They want parties to find their answers. They don't want to be burdened with unnecessary cases that could be sorted otherwise. So between my arguments and the courts wanting it done this way, these are generally the better, cheaper, more effective answers. Now, there are other professional roles in dispute resolution. You mentioned expert witness just earlier. Can you explore a little bit how they work and when they might be needed? Yes, it's very easy to spend time thinking about who is the person resolving the dispute and how they might look at it. But there are, as you say, other professional roles. One of the most important ones in this is, as you mentioned, the expert witness. And that's, again, looking at it particularly in terms of of arbitration. And for over two centuries, the courts have recognised that while nobody but the judge is supposed to have an opinion in a court, they need the benefit of professional expertise. Ultimately, it's important to a court, and here in arbitration, to have a professional opinion. And so expert witnesses emerged as a means not of giving evidence simply facts, but of professional judgment and understanding of situations. So what a rental market might be, how things might work for a succession, how to understand the issues in in a partnership or looking at a renewable energy agreement or whatever it might be. And parties can have expert witnesses. The court sometimes might want to have a joint, a single joint expert and one person to advise the court or arbitrator. That person, because of the privilege of giving an opinion to the court, not just fact, is under a very strong obligation, owing a professional duty not to the client, but to the arbitrator, to the process, to give a fair, objective opinion as to what the outcome should be. They're there to help the process. They're not, up, they're not there, however much the client paying for the expert might think, they're not there to be a hired gun to give the client's own view, they're to give a dispassionate view and... That's a very important role 
and it's one on which arbitrators and then later on courts place very great stress. Another role is that of an advocate, somebody who can then present the arguments. The expert is there to present an opinion. That is a professional matter. The advocate, where necessary, shapes and puts the case and so tells the story in the way that best explains it. Because at root, the whole exercise, once you've gone to a third party, is not to splutter, it's not to make assertions, it's to explain and give facts and give evidence and persuade a third party, the arbitrator, why he should find for you. Why is your case right? Why should somebody who doesn't know you, doesn't know your farm, doesn't know the other party, why should he find your argument the better? And so stepping back and we're going right back to early neutral evaluation, you're beginning to look at this sense of understanding in your argument what somebody looking in from outside would actually think. And here the job of the advocate is to present your arguments in the best way possible so that the arbitrator can understand them if they have weight give them weight can come back with the right questions but again we're all looking at trying to do this efficiently focus on the key issues not on 20 different unimportant things the two things that really matter on which the decision will turn and that's again is a very important role so how are your own members selected to manage a particular case what qualifications do they need the qualification for being appointed as an arbitrator is that they be on our panel of arbitrators. And those went through rigorous interviews on their knowledge of arbitration legislation, because one of the attractions of arbitration is that it comes with a formal framework of statute law around it that, subject to anything the parties agree, gives the arbitrator significant ability to drive the case forward in an effective way, giving them answers. So very much that interview focused on their knowledge and fluency in how the Arbitration Act works, how they would handle cases, how they would understand difficult situations. And we went through that process and appointed a panel of arbitrators. We have also appointed a panel of mediators for the different skills involved in mediation. When it comes to appointing somebody to determine a case as an expert, we would normally look for people who have been qualified for 10 years, but there we would be looking at the particular expertise required. Because at this point, an expert determining a matter does actually have to be expert. And I can go back to, for example, one particular case many years ago where the issue in dispute was the value of the stock of commercial fish in a fishing lake. Now, most people wouldn't actually have any expertise in that. And that's the point where we would look beyond the membership. We would far rather deal with our responsibility by appointing the right person to give the expertise to help everybody to the answer than be particularly precious about whether or not they were members. It's the right person. And in a case like that, or it could be a mushroom farm, or it could be uh, something very particular about a, a breed of cattle, or it could be something else where actually the number of people who are really expert in that could be very, very few. And that's where we would look to appoint the right person, as we would in the other cases as well. 
So does this service apply across the whole of the UK or are matters different in the devolved regions? Yes, our service is available across the whole United Kingdom, so Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland. In Scotland, our Scottish member association, SAVA, has a statutory recognition as arbitral appointment referee, so people can turn to it to appoint an arbitrator if they can't find another route. But we can accept and give and make appointments, whether it's for arbitrators, experts or mediators, on all the range of rural disputes across the United Kingdom. It's simply the statutory power for either a landlord or a tenant on their own with an agricultural tenancy to ask the president of the CAV to appoint is limited to England and Wales. But we cover, as we've said earlier, the whole spread of disputes beyond that and the whole United Kingdom. So if anyone is in need of help with something, who should they approach in the first instance? They should come to the CAV Secretariat. They should look at the CAV website. Under About the CAV, they will see a page there, a group of pages there about dispute resolution. The form is published there on the website. The form is available from the CAV Secretariat, the form for asking for an appointment. The form is also published as an appendix in the new publication. They're readily available. It's just a question of making contact with the CAV. Thank you very much, Jeremy. It's great to know that there is so much comprehensive help and advice available. Nobody wants to find themselves in a dispute, but it's clear that there is a lot of assistance to try and find amicable ways forward, as well as highly professional service to help at every step towards arbitration and beyond. As ever, members can keep up to date through the detailed briefing notes on the CAAB website. Jeremy, thank you once again for joining me.